And hello and welcome to this week's edition of Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm Jake Novak, and it is really hard to get off of the high uh, for this radio network that has been established by just the incredible several days of programming that uh, Nachum and the general manager, Miriam Wallach, put together and broadcast from Dubai. I know it's a few days now since they returned, but um, what an incredible series of broadcasts and how important it is for us to continue to talk about it and to analyze it because there's a job to do, I believe, now for especially America's Jews, uh, Jews all over the world, but particularly America's Jews and the American Jewish community of all levels of, of observance and connection to, to Judaism and Israel and all that stuff. Uh, there's a job now for all of us to do that I want to talk about. Um, but again, it's, it's so important for me to just mention a couple of things first that I think work uh, very well as we try to break down what was so important about this particular broadcast. Um, I talked the other day about, in the, in the previous edition of Novak Now, the December um, 7th edition of Novak Now, I talked about all the things that I've said before about how there are certain historical bases for creating a partnership with Arab countries, especially those based on economic partnerships. Um, I will put on my Twitter feed at Jake Jake New York NY at Jake Jake NY as I always do uh, links to articles that I've written and other people have written that give you more information about what I'm talking about, and I have a, a long column that I wrote in August, not that long, but a little bit longer than, uh, than something you might read somewhere else, uh, explaining some of that history, explaining some of the economic ties and some of the understanding that some Arab countries had and some Arab people had uh, that pushed them towards a favorable outlook towards a Jewish state in the 1920s and in some of the years before that. Um, and, and I'll put that up. That will be on my Twitter feed for the next couple of days, talking about the real roadmap to peace. But we heard all of that during the broadcast, several of the broadcasts that Nachum did and Miriam did from Dubai last week. But, you know, one of the things that came, I want to talk first a little bit about one of the new revelations that just came to me during those broadcasts. And one of them is that just the, the economic status of Dubai and the historical status of Dubai and what it's trying to, the, the, the model it's trying to emulate. And I think one of the things that just hit me during one of the final broadcasts was that Dubai is the new Hong Kong. And to understand what, I'm, what I mean by that, you need to understand what made Hong Kong so special for more than a century in the world. In, the, the reason Hong Kong was so special and was such an incredible place for economic commerce was because it had a government that governed least. Now, yes, it also was a port city in the most populous nation of the world, and obviously it had a lot of the infrastructure and the geographic location needed to be successful economically. But a lot of cities fit that bill. Uh, a lot of cities were port cities in the world in major population centers in major trade on, on major trade routes. So what was so special about Hong Kong is because its government governed least. The government didn't care about your religion. The government didn't care about your political leanings. As long as you were not a violent or dangerous criminal, 
the government didn't bother you. The famous saying about the government of Hong Kong was it was it was kind of like a a uh, a board of directors type government with no centralized leader and the joke about them was that they'd sit around all day and drink tea and that's the way it was and that's the way and that was the way everyone needed it to be and the city was not only prosperous but it was very efficient because capitalistic and for-profit motivations with a, an understanding that if they just made a quick buck and left it wouldn't work so with long-term capitalist concerns dominated the administration of that city for so many decades and it just continued to prosper and prosper and prosper. And sadly, what we're seeing in Hong Kong today is more and more government intrusion. And so it's not doing as well as it used to. And of course, over the past year, that government intrusion has taken extreme levels to the point where freedom of, the freedoms that were promised to Hong Kong when Britain turned the administration of Hong Kong over to the Chinese government in 1997, many of those promises have now been broken. And of course, there was a massive protest movement there last year that was put down, and the leaders of which now have started to become arrested en masse, even though the protests have been long over. And we're seeing an end to that special status that Hong Kong enjoyed. It's not completely over, and I think that Hong Kong, from an economic standpoint, is still more valuable as far as dollars that are transacted there in a given year compared to Dubai. But that, that gap is, is, is narrowing. And I think that there are, someone could make the argument that there are still more freedoms to some degree in Hong Kong than there are in Dubai. But of course, that gap is also narrowing. And the way things are going right now, I feel very strongly that Dubai will soon, very soon, overtake Hong Kong as a freer city, as a better city. And a city where people can feel freer and from an economic standpoint. Now, from a religious standpoint, I think that there's an interesting difference going on here. Now, I think Dubai does not care about your religion in a similar way that Hong Kong's government for many years didn't care about your religion. Now they do. If you're a Uyghur Muslim, you're in big trouble in Hong Kong as you are anywhere and anywhere where the Chinese government has control. But I think that in Dubai, there is an understanding now of not just a, okay, it's okay if you're not a Muslim, but there's a celebration, I think, now of Judaism going on in, in Dubai. I think that there's likely to be a celebration of Christianity to some degree, but it'll be easier to celebrate Jewish practices because there are more Jewish, I mean, for those of you listening who know your, your Hebrew and, and religious terminology, there are more halachot, there are more rules and regulations and observances that Jews are carrying out, observant Jews are carrying out every day. Uh, during the Nachum Siegel broadcast, there, there, was many, there were many references to, to something that I've always talked about myself as well, is that just like the five, day, five times a day prayer that Muslims have to observe, Jews have the three times a day prayer that, that we have to observe. And um, so that's always been one thing. And there's so many other similarities, the halal food requirement that Muslims have to uphold is very similar to kashrut, the kosher rules that Jews have to observe. It's all, all and all down the line. But instead of just ignoring it, I think that, Hong, that uh, Dubai is taking that extra step of actually celebrating and, and really showing great respect and acknowledgement of Jewish practice, which I think is very interesting and could be the basis for one of those things that makes Dubai a better place for Jews to go. Another th- uh, reason why I think Dubai will 
have tremendous a bigger place in the Jewish world at some point than Hong Kong is the fact that Dubai is so close to Israel. It's only three hours away. It's a three-hour flight, and those flights are going now pretty regularly between Dubai and Tel Aviv, more specifically Lod, the airport in the Ben-Gurion airport in Israel. So to me, that's another nice sign. And um, these are important these are important points to make about why we're in a, in a very special place. And I think Dubai could become that that city because they they don't they don't really have a tax they just have a VAT tax which is zero point zero five percent or something like that it's a really small tax and they don't have income tax they don't have all these other regulations and they really make it easy for people who want to try to live there and want to try to prosper there so these are all really important reasons why Dubai could become and I think it's already becoming the new Hong Kong and shame on the government of China and Beijing for ruining a goose that lays the golden egg in Hong Kong and every year making it harder and harder to continue being that that um, unique city. And kudos to the, ru- the ruling family of the United Arab Emirates who continue to make Dubai a freer and more welcoming city. So that was one thing that really hit me there. Um, and I think it's an interesting fact that it's it's going to be able to, Dubai is looking like it's going to be able to become that kind of a free city without ignoring religion. Listen, we'd rather be ignored than, than persecuted, but it's also nice to be acknowledged in, in a respectful way, and I think that's what's going on there. Another thing that has to hit you from those broadcasts in Dubai is just the universal acknowledgement that the peace agreements, not only the United Arab Emirates uh, peace agreement with Israel, but also the one from Bahrain. And then over the weekend, we learned about Morocco and Bhutan, which is an independent principality. In, well, principality is really not the best word, but an independent entity. We learned that all of those peace agreements up and down the line, anyone, everyone involved in them, really gives President Donald Trump a tremendous amount of credit to the point where they all say that these deals and agreements would not have happened would not have been able to have occurred if he were not president and if it hadn't been for the work that he did. So that's another thing to remember. Now, what does that mean going forward? You know, it just means that we give credit where credit is due. Uh, It doesn't mean we have to build statues. It doesn't mean that there has to be a political backlash against anybody or, or, or something like that. But what it does mean is that you have to give credit where credit is due. And I'll talk more about that a little bit later in, in this edition of Novak Now, because there's much work for us to do beyond just praising uh, President Trump here when it comes to these, these peace agreements and what they mean. So uh, there was an absolutely universal acknowledgement from people from the, from the Emiratis that were there, from the Jews that were there, from people who probably didn't vote for President Trump. There was just absolutely universal acknowledgement that he was very responsible for these peace agreements, that he very much deserved the credit for it, and we shouldn't forget to give credit where credit where, where credit is due. For for a people for, for you know being the Jewish people for for a people that's dealt with that have been dealing with so much persecution and so much anti-Semitism for so many generations, and of course so many parts of the world where anti-Semitism is rearing its ugly head again in a big way. It's very important that we acknowledge those who are bucking that trend. It's very important that we acknowledge those who are helping to end, even if it's just on paper in some ways, official anti-Semitism or official anti-Israel policies. Very, very important. Um, 
And it's so important for Israel to have places in its neighborhood, its overall Middle Eastern neighborhood, although Dubai is certainly on the outskirts of that. Some people would say geographically it's a little bit beyond the Middle East, but a three-hour flight from Israel that is an easy kind of trip to make where they can fly over Saudi Arabia to get there, that's important. That's important for Israel to have partners that are closer than having to cross an ocean, and that's really important. Um, You know, there was another part of this revelation and this this trip and, and, and these peace agreements that keep coming up, not, not just the, again, just over the weekend, we heard about the Morocco peace agreement and also Bhutan. And, and what we're seeing, what I'm seeing from a lot of my friends and people who, who I agree with about a lot of political issues and what we're seeing from them is a, a, almost all of them are making the point, and they're factually correct here, they're making the point of putting up a video of John Kerry from five or six years ago, where he very pompously and very incorrectly, talks about how you can't have any peace between Arabs and Israelis until the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is settled. And a lot of my friends, both personal friends and intellectual uh, fellow travelers, are making a point of posting that video of John Kerry making this. I mean, it wasn't just that he made an incorrect statement from a factual point of view, but just that haughty, self-assured, know-it-all tone in his voice that isn't exclusive, unfortunately, to John Kerry. It seems to be very common among lifetime politicians and lifetime bureaucrats. So a lot of them are making a point of posting that video and, as we say in the common parlance, dunking on, which is just a kind of a sports term to make fun of somebody, and saying, well, you know, he was wrong about that, ha, ha, ha. And from a factual point of view, they're not wrong. They're not wrong. Here's the thing, though, that I want to warn all the listeners here of Novak Now to think about, and I want, I want to warn them about, and I want to really make a, an important point here. We are dealing now with a very dangerous situation when we talk about people like John Kerry and the mistakes that they've made in the past. I am very worried that John Kerry, no matter what position he gets, I guess he's going to get some kind of climate position in the Biden administration, but there'll be other people involved in the administration who also believe, you know, thought like Kerry did and were proved so embarrassingly wrong. I'm very worried that they are going to spend the next several years of their lives trying to destroy these peace agreements, not just the momentum that we're seeing lately, but destroy these peace agreements in order to, in quotes, prove themselves right. In other words, instead of saying, hey, I was wrong, but I still think we should pursue a different policy moving forward or whatever, instead of that, they're going to try to, either behind the scenes or very openly, destroy these peace agreements and this momentum, and then be able to go back and say, you see, I wasn't wrong. It really is an Israeli-Palestinian problem, and that's what's causing us not to have these kinds of other agreements. I am extremely worried about that. So I am very worried about people who are posting that video of John Kerry, because I think all that's going to do is encourage him and others like him in this new breed of never say I'm sorry, never change your policy type politicians that we have out there. I mean, I think it's 
not exactly brand spanking new. I think it's something that's been going on for 20, 25 years, not just in the United States, but in other countries as well, where politicians make terrible mistakes. And instead of saying to themselves or even publicly, hey, we made this mistake. We want to win some elections moving forward and we want to have the credit for good policies moving forward. Let's move and change and fix it. And we don't have to say it was the other guys were right all along. We don't have to do that. But we do have to sort of say, hey, we made some tactical errors in the past. Let's fix it. I feel like that sentence that I just said has become pie in the sky type stuff that nobody says anymore. And I feel like John Kerry and those like him are unfortunately very likely to spend the next several years trying to destroy the peace, trying to end this momentum so that they never even have to, so they can pretend that they never made a mistake and made a mistake they did, made a mistake they did on many different levels. So I'm worried about that. So maybe, you know, I I am not one to censor anyone or tell people not to say what they're feeling, but I just want you to remember that every time you post that video of John Kerry, to dunk on him and make fun of him, you may be encouraging him to do something very damaging. I think he's going to try to do it anyway, but I think he'll be even more encouraged to try to hurt these peace agreements, to try to stop this momentum, to maybe even cancel some of the stuff if they can possibly find a way to do that. And, you know, maybe we shouldn't do that. We, 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 know, we know that John Kerry was wrong. We know that. And maybe we can do something other than posting these videos to embarrass him. I don't know what to say. I, or maybe we should not think about embarrassing him. Maybe we should just do what Jason Greenblatt, who in a fantastic interview, and they've separated this, the clip of his interview with Nahum that he gave, I believe it was on Wednesday or Thursday. It must have been on Thursday, I guess. Um, where, actually Wednesday, where, where Jason Greenblatt was very diplomatic in the question when he was asked about the John Kerry mistake. And he basically said, that doesn't really matter. I don't know if he was wrong. I don't know if he had any ill intent with that mistake. The most important thing is that we just continue to move forward. And I thought that was a very diplomatic and smart answer from Jason Greenland. And we have to think about that. I want to remind you again why this is so important, because I want to make this point about this new breed of politician out there. You know, two of the biggest political mistakes of the 20th century were made by a British prime minister in Neville Chamberlain and an Israeli prime minister in Golda Meir. Neville Chamberlain made that horrible mistake in 1938 where he gave in to Adolf Hitler and allowed the, the, the Nazis to continue to control Czechoslovakia. And in return, he thought he had peace in our time. And of course, it became one of the greatest blunders in political history because, of course, the Nazis weren't ever considering stopping uh, at Czechoslovakia. And of course, they had designs on conquering pretty much the whole world, but certainly all of Europe. And within a couple, you know, with you know, less than two years later, less than a year and a half later, they were attacking and bombing Great Britain. But here's the part about Neville Chamberlain's mistake that they don't teach in school, that they don't talk about enough, and I wish they would. Now, I am not exonerating Neville Chamberlain by any stretch of the imagination with what I'm about to say, but I just want you to know something about Neville Chamberlain. So Neville Chamberlain had to leave office in, you know, pretty much disgrace for his mistake. And he spent those last moments of his life, because he died in 1940, he did not live to see Britain win World War II, or, you know, (laughs) jump on America's coattails and, and, and gain victory in World War II. But in that last year of his life, something you may not know, he worked very hard 
for the British war effort against the Nazis. And he did not go around to members of parliament and his friends and other people saying, hey, keep this peace with Germany. I'm going to be proved right. Just, just hold on here. He had the decency. Now, granted, it, was very, it would have been a very difficult current for him to swim against. That's why I'm not exonerating him and making him a saint by any means. But the important fact about Neville Chamberlain is, is that as much as he still had a lot of je- jealousies and petty rivalries with, with Churchill and other members of parliament... He never, he, he, he did basically acknowledge that he had been wrong. At least he did, he did it privately. But more importantly, he did a very good job of working very hard for that war effort up until the time he died of cancer. So there was contrition on his part, even if it wasn't super public. And more important than, than a statement of contrition, he acted in a contrite way and that he worked very, very hard to help the British war effort. He could have just sat home, you know, in his wealthy lifestyle, brooding about how uh, he was being misinterpreted and, and, and not thought of as a great guy. He actually, you know, actively worked to, to, in some ways, correct his mistake. Again, Neville Chamberlain is still an embarrassment to British history, is still someone who created a dangerous situation for the world because of his appeasement of Hitler. But this is someone who understood that he made a mistake and didn't work and dedicate his life to to covering it up or pretending he didn't make the mistake or bashing the people who were saying he obviously made a mistake. He actually spent his last years, last time, doing something good. Golda Meir, I think, is a similar story in many ways. Golda Meir made her terrible tactical errors as prime minister that led to Israel's vulnerability in the Yom Kippur War. And this was confirmed by so many different sources over the years. And whereas Golda Meir also never gave a big speech saying, hey, I was totally wrong about stuff in the Yom Kippur War. I hope the whole world accept, you know, forgives me. She never did that. And because of that, again, I'm not going to make her into a saint either. But she had the decency to step down not long after the war ended. She had the decency not to trash others and blame others publicly for the mistakes in, in, in the Yom Kippur War, at least not consistently so. And she certainly didn't resign herself to a personal campaign of making herself look good in her last years on Earth. She continued to work for peace. She was an important personal contact for Anwar Sadat in the, in the peace agreement with, that eventually became with Egypt. And I think that she, just, she showed a certain level of humility. So did Moshe Dayan who ended up having to resign as defense minister. Again, I'm not making these people saints. I'm not saying they, they lost all their egos. I'm not saying that they were totally contrite and totally, you know, asked for atonement and all that. I am not saying that. But there was a level of quiet. There was a level of understanding that it was their time to go, that it was their time to work a little bit more behind the scenes, and they did. And that is so important. And I think that that is something that this current generation, or maybe even last two generations of politicians, especially in the United States, but also in places like Israel, I think that this is a tradition they have unfortunately not taken on. So when I worry about somebody like John Kerry, believe me, I have reason to worry about him. This is someone who, unlike Neville Chamberlain or unlike a Golda Meir, I believe is already dedicating a tremendous amount of his energy 
a tremendous amount of his work to try to prove, quote unquote, that he was right all along. So let's not give him any more encouragement. Uh, That's my request to you. I have one more request, which is probably more important. And that is, folks, we must do our best as American Jews especially to celebrate and acknowledge and frequently reference these peace agreements. The cold water that some people have been pouring on the peace agreements between Israel and the UAE, Bahrain, and now Morocco, and Bhutan, and Sudan, the cold water that's being poured on it is a scandal in the Jewish community of very high levels. And I'm not just talking about the ultra-secular Jews who are anti-Israel, who only want a negative uh, narrative about Israel. I'm not talking about them. Obviously, they're they're an existing scandal and a continuous scandal that never ends. It's okay to be critical of Israel, but those who are so overly critical of Israel to the point where they wish it ill are not worth too much of our, uh, uh, of our time, sadly. But I'm talking about even Jews who are very supportive of Israel, who seem to have a problem with these peace accords, and we know why. A lot of them are really, really people who hate Donald Trump and they know that he deserves the credit for, to a great degree for these peace deals. And so they have a really difficult time just in in their stomach being able to give him credit for anything, which is just a shame. It's just a shame. It it, it shows a level of partisanship here in America that that, that people shouldn't have, that Jews should not have the luxury of continuing to to accommodate. It's just not something we should continue doing. There are others who just don't understand the history as well. You can be a supporter of, his, of Israel and not understand the historic nature of, this peace de- of these peace deals. But it's time to learn. It's time to learn. And then there are people who are very favorable to Israel and do know, and they're just not making enough of, a, of, of, a, of, a, of I think, a, a statement about this. This is a very big deal. These peace agreements are important. They have a tremendous economic impact. They have a chance to change generations of negativity between Arabs and Jews all over the world, Muslims and Jews all over the world, it's very important to acknowledge it. And I don't think there's any excuse, we just do not have an excuse right now, not to continue to be very happy about this. We are dropping the ball, I think, as a community. And I don't want to get into all the reasons, I've already mentioned a couple of the reasons for it, but it's time to start talking about it. If you are in a, for especially a modern Orthodox shul or a conservative synagogue, and your rabbi hasn't spoken about these peace deals in a positive way more than once or, or at all, you should maybe give him a call or her a call if you're in a conservative synagogue and ask them, why not? Why, why can't we have some hopeful um, and, and uh, intelligent talk about about you know in, in a sermon or in a in an email that you send to the congregation or something like that explaining why this is so important why not give that to us we really need that you know for years those of us who have been really really pro israel and very very critical of arab countries have forever tried to say hey this isn't a racial thing we're not racist against arabs and muslims we just think that their leaders are telling them horrible things okay well now you've got some leaders who are telling them good things about israel and the jews and if we don't celebrate that then our argument that we're not bigoted or that we're not really good in our own right is being weakened. We've got to make that point. We've got to encourage those who are willing to be friendly to the Jews and friendly to Israel. 
So I would urge you to do this. I mean, you know, don't be a jerk about it. Don't, don't call your rabbi up in the middle of the night and be a jerk about it. Don't email something nasty. But I would say, please go to them and say, in some way or form, even if it's virtually, and say, can, can we have more discussion about the importance of these peace deals? Can we discuss it? Can we get that as part of what we talk about here in our synagogue and our community? I hope that that's where we can go from now on. I'm Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. I hope to speak to you again next week.